Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for this Thursday, November the 19th. Coming up, an event on Parliament Hill called Broken Hearts, Empty Shoes, a day to honor those that we've lost in long-term care. We'll speak to one of the organizers. Plus, as well, infectious diseases specialist Dr. Sumon Chakrabati talks about the possible lockdown in Ontario coming tomorrow and some other COVID concerns. And Annie Kidder, executive director and founder of People for Education, will discuss what needs to happen for schools in Ontario to stop the spread of the virus. That's coming up right now on the pod. Okay, as concern continues to rise about long-term care, not only in this province, but right across the country, it has manifested itself into a demonstration today called Broken Hearts, Empty Shoes. Melissa Miller is with the organization, and she joins us now for more on this on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Melissa, really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Sorry if there's background noise. We're cleaning up at Parliament Hill right now. <laughs> well, tell us a bit about what uh, went on there at uh, Parliament Hill. For those that are wondering, by the way, here in the era of uh, COVID, uh, this was a, a more subdued uh, demonstration, correct? Yeah, so that's why we called it Broken Hearts, Empty Shoes, because we couldn't have you know a big protest of you know, thousands of people demonstrating uh, in order to push the government for national standards. So we ended up uh, laying out... 2,000 pairs of empty shoes on the lawn of Parliament Hill, one pair uh, representing four residents of long-term care homes that died in Canada during COVID-19. And uh, so we had uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh speak, and we had uh, two Liberal MPs speak, and we had some other, we heard from the president of the Quebec Nurses Association, who gave a really heartbreaking account of what uh, her experience was like as a frontline worker uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. So it was a pretty moving day, and we paid homage and, and honoured those that we've lost needlessly in long-term care homes. Yeah, what has the reaction been like uh, online? Because you were streaming this as well, correct? Yeah, so, I mean, people had some pretty emotional reactions. I mean, it was uh, pretty moving, uh, and everyone was just... Everyone was sharing their own stories. Um, I think there isn't a, a person in this country that isn't affected in some way, shape, or form by what's going on in our long-term care homes right now. We've all got parents, grandparents, and uh, if we don't have someone in a long-term care home now, we probably will in the future. So it's a pretty scary situation right now. Yeah. What is the immediate fear? Is it just that COVID seems to be in long-term care uh, once again, and we haven't sadly learned the lessons of the, the first wave? No, actually, um, I mean, obviously, yes, but this, you know, COVID has only highlighted the longstanding systemic issues that have been uh, in long-term care for years, decades even. So, you know, families and, and frontline workers have been sounding the alarm for as long as those issues have been issues, and no one was paying attention. So COVID-19 highlighted these issues, and now they made it impossible to ignore so that's, uh, you know, brought everything front and center. Now people are paying attention. So we thought, you know what, now's the time to act. Now, you say that your organization and part of the demonstration was a call for and the need for uh, national standards. Just exactly what would you like to see from the uh, federal government? Just uh, what sort of standards do we need put in place? Yeah, I mean, standards, first and foremost, uh, you know, we, we need an end to the for-profit model of long-term care. When people are making money, being paid out dividends, turning a profit, while others are dying under the care of those individuals, it's a problem. And that needs to be fixed first and foremost, uh, which is primarily why uh, Mr. Singh came and spoke today. 
the uh, Liberal government has already announced that they want to implement some national standards, and national standards would really be in place across Canada, but they're going to be ineffective unless the provinces and the territories work with the federal government so that those standards can be upheld at the level of the provincial government because long-term care is in the jurisdiction of the provincial government. But primarily, we want to see the staff uh, receive better compensation, more training, more resources. Uh, we need to fix the issue of understaffing in, in homes. Uh, the residents need to be placed in a priority, and right now they're crammed into rooms, four to a room. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things that need to change. That's a very much longer conversation, but at the, the bottom of this is putting seniors, our most vulnerable, front and center, first and foremost, when we're talking about standards. Now, do you feel as if uh, perhaps uh, we haven't seen that uh, as of right now, these uh, standards, uh, because we, you know, have got this sort of hybrid model, as you just uh, highlighted, uh, for-profit, and then there's other uh, long-term care facilities that are uh, under the uh, public uh, domain rather than the private domain. And do we need to bring long-term care back under, uh, basically, uh, look at it like uh, health care, that uh, it should be a publicly, publicly funded and publicly run? Would that solve a lot of the problems uh, here? It would solve some, but, um, you know, I, again, like I said earlier, the, the, the profit margins are only a piece of that. Another piece is how disjointed everything is, how complicated it is. It's just this frustrating web for families to try to navigate, um, you know, the, the, various, the various heads aren't talking to each other, so to speak. And there just needs to be some uniformity and cooperation and collaboration so that there isn't, uh, so that people aren't fending for themselves within the system. Now you mentioned Mr. Singh uh, spoke uh, earlier today at the uh, demonstration, and also a couple of Liberal cabinet members. Do you feel as if uh, this message is moving forward? That the Trudeau government is hearing you, is listening? I do. Yeah, uh, I, I think they are. Um, and in fact, you know, I mean, it's been one of the reasons why we decided to to do this is because we heard. Uh, the throne speech from the federal government talking about the need for national standards. And so we wanted to show the federal government that we support that and call on the premiers of our provinces and territories to take action because they can't stand on the sidelines. Do you feel as if, uh, Melissa, that action is uh, forthcoming here? Because, uh, I mean, you've seen this, I've seen this before, that uh, there's a demonstration, people get, uh, you know, all uh, hot and angry uh, about something, and then, you know, sadly nothing's done or something is done way, way down the road, and a lot of times it's maybe watered down or not what you originally uh, hoped or really truly uh, solved the problem, because time is obviously of the essence. This has gone on far too long, as you said off the top, that this is just highlighting what have been systemic problems in long-term care, but we need action. We need action now. Given what has come down from our provincial government in Ontario, I do not feel confident that this government has an interest in supporting these national standards. Um, I mean, I hope to be proven wrong, quite frankly, but, uh, you know, given Bill 218, for, uh, for instance, that just passed, protecting long-term care homes from immunity, uh, sorry, from lawsuits arising from COVID-19, preventing families from seeking justice against those homes. That's what our government is doing right now. So I, I don't know uh, what our government is going to do in response to this. 
what I hope our government does is have a conversation with the stakeholders that have that are experts in the area and work with our federal government to put the care of our most vulnerable over the profit of these companies that are caring for them. All right. Melissa Miller. Melissa, I know a very busy day uh, for you today. Thank you so much uh, for taking a few moments uh, for us here this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Melissa Miller is with Broken Hearts, Empty Shoes. As you just heard, they held a uh, demonstration in Ottawa on Parliament Hill earlier today. The Premier, Doug Ford, asked about the scope of the restrictions that will be announced tomorrow for Toronto, Peel, and other Ontario hotspots. Here was his response. We're going to take the recommendations from from Dr. Williams, and then we'll have to make a decision. And and I don't, I'm 100% upfront here. I don't have the recommendations right at this moment, hmm. uh, but that will uh, come to cabinet, and then we'll uh, take it from there. Okay, not exactly a lot of clarity there, but let's see if we can get some from Dr. Sumon Chakrabati. He's on the line and joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Afternoon. Okay, let me put the same question to you that uh, was asked of the Premier just uh, last hour. Uh, what do you think the scope of these restrictions coming in tomorrow, what should they be? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I was having a lot of discussion about this with some of my other infectious disease and epidemiology colleagues, and I'm not entirely sure. I mean, a lot of the big uh, uh, things are closed right now, you know, things like indoor dining, uh, gyms are very limited. Uh, there's a lot of limitations in worship. I think a lot of the stuff that the, that we have to close would just be essentially retail, I guess, and, and worship uh uh, centers, but the issue right now, to me, is that that seems to be not where the problems are occurring, especially in the Peel region. And I'm not sure how much of an effect the uh, uh, broad brush lockdown will have in this regard. Yeah, you know, I thought the same thing when this was announced the other day. Is uh, what more can we possibly close? And then I thought, uh, just because out front of my window right here, we've got two major construction projects uh, underway. I mean, are they going to be allowed to continue like last time? Should they be shut down? I mean. It is really hard to, you know, kind of pinpoint or figure out what exactly is going to be closed. Do you think that there's a lot of people listening right now in Toronto, Peel, York that uh, might not be going to work starting next week? Uh, possibly, yeah. I, I think that uh, of what is left that's open, we might certainly see a blanket closure. Uh, for example, uh, there's a tennis facility that I go to, and uh, that might be closed. But again, I, I think that it's a situation where you're trying to squeeze that last drop out of an already squeezed lemon. And what we're seeing in the pattern of transmission is a lot of it is occurring in essential areas where it's very difficult to close that. So, for example, a food processing plant, uh, you know, and then amplification that's occurring in multi-generational households. These are things that are structural um, issues that we, you can't correct very easily. So right now, I'm not certain that a lockdown is going to make a huge difference, though I understand why they're thinking about doing it to try to get whatever you can to reduce the cases in the next uh, month. Should we be focusing on uh, where the problem uh, is and just exactly where is that? Is it social gatherings and is it even possible to, to clamp down on those? Yeah, and I th think that has been a theme across Canada, these indoor gatherings. You know, whether it's a party, of course, but also things just like getting together for uh, play cards, dinners, that type of thing. And, you know, to be honest with you, it's very, very difficult to clamp down on that. And I can understand breaking up a party of 200 people, but how do you stop, you know, a thousand people who are, you know, in the house with eight 
eight people, nine people. You know, you can't have bylaw officers going to everybody's door, and I really don't think you should. So that's the one thing. But the other thing, too, is in the workplace, there are some ways you can go around that, including uh, having paid sick leave for people who are otherwise very afraid to come forward uh, to get tested because they know that if they're positive, they're financially unstable and they would have to be off work for uh, several days. Do you think we should have a circuit breaker style uh, lockdown? I know that's been discussed particularly uh, out west, but is that something that uh, maybe the province of Ontario or at least uh, hot spots could benefit from? Uh, one of those uh, very uh, you know heavy on limitations but uh, short on time frame lockdowns. Yeah, and I think that that's what would be happening in this lockdown that uh, uh, is potentially going to be uh, put in tomorrow. But again, you know, you can't close certain essential things. Right. And, uh, you know, you, I mean, I guess you could try to close a, a food processing plant, but then, you know, we'd all starve. And I think these types of things have to be grappled with. Uh, so, again, it's probably going to be short, probably, I'm, I'm guessing, 28 days. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm really anxious to see what they're going to bring in tomorrow. Okay, gazing into your crystal ball, though, again, do you think it's going to be retail? It is going to be places of uh, worship? Those are going to be the areas that uh, we'll see uh, further restrictions? I think so. I think that these, these are kind of like the, the uh, last places that are standing still. And uh, in the fact of going back to what we saw in the springtime, that's what my guess would be. All right. In the springtime, of course, uh, schools were uh, closed. They will not be this time. There will not be an extended uh, winter or holiday break. Uh, That was announced the other day by the education minister. Yet interesting, in New York State, just south of us, of course, uh, over the border, all public schools have been closed there. And I'd love your take uh, as a medical expert on this, because the infection rate in schools in New York City is 3%, where it's reportedly 6%, double here in Ontario, yet our schools are remaining open. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at our schools that, uh, yes, there are cases of uh, COVID around schools, but it's kind of a bunch of cases that are spread out among a lot of schools. You're not seeing a lot of change of uh, sustained transmission. There have been, but it's quite uh, uh, minor in that regard. And I think the other thing is, is that we're looking at the benefits versus the risks of closing schools. And, you know, schools are such an important benefit to the, uh, you know, the development of our children. And I think uh, the goal of the government has been to protect that at all costs. Obviously, things are different in New York. It's a good point about the the rates, and certainly they uh, weighed other pros and cons, but I think this is the right move to keep school open, and it is not a major driver of transmission. I think that closing it would be worse than um, uh, the the risk of keeping it open. Just finally, uh, Doctor, is the message or should the message from the provincial government be more around fatigue and COVID fatigue and not letting our guard down? Would that make the most difference? I mean, we can... uh, you know, close and lock down shops, stores, retail centers uh, once again. But at the end of the day, if it is these social gatherings, do we need that message that uh, just don't let your guard down? And as a matter of fact, now is not the time because there is some light at the end of the tunnel with some vaccines on the way. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And, I, and I, this one, I have to be honest with you, I don't have a good answer to because I, I, it's almost like people are fatigued of being called fatigued. You know, it, <laughs> it, 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 it's a tough situation. But yeah, like no matter which way you cut it, this has been going on for 10 months and uh, it's been such a change from our daily lives. I understand why people feel the way that we do, but we really still have to kind of stick together. We're almost there, but we just don't want to be in a situation where we have uncontrolled explosive spread when we're trying to be um, uh, rolling out a vaccine. All right. Meanwhile, we'll wait for the announcement tomorrow. Dr. Sumon Chakravati, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much. Always glad to be here. Thanks so much.
much. As we know, the schools in the province will remain open and they will not take an extended break during the holidays. Did we make the right decision? Let's ask education expert Annie Kidder. She's with People for Education and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Annie, good afternoon. <laughs> good afternoon, Jeff. Okay, as you well know, COVID numbers, they've been on the rise. So was it the right call to keep students in the classroom? Oh, if only I knew, you know, one <laughs> definitive answer to anything right now. Um, it, it is really hard to know. There, you know, there definitely were mixed opinions. The head of the directors of education on, on, in Ontario did say, let's uh, keep schools closed. He didn't say give kids another week of holidays, but do online learning so that schools stayed closed for two weeks after uh, the Christmas holidays, just in case anybody was irresponsible, that it would give them time to know, um, or whatever, came in contact with anybody with COVID, uh, that they needed to stay home. It seemed sensible on the face of it, but I am not an epidemiologist or a scientist or a doctor. And I think, you know, that that is who we have to listen to right now. I think that for a lot of people who, again, not epidemiologists or scientists, it's looking at the community spread and going, we've really got to do something about that, that it is important to try and keep schools open. But if we're going to keep them open, we have to bring the numbers down that are uh, spreading in communities. Well, it was around this time yesterday, the New York State, they announced that they're going to close Mm -hmm. their public schools uh, starting uh, today. So it was very little, if any, notice uh, for parents there. Their infection rate is roughly half of what is in our schools uh, right now. We're, We're nearly double. So should that give us pause for thought, do you think? Yes, except again, you know, it's all of us talking to each other who aren't experts. So, yes, it did. I mean, they did announce last week if the number, if it got up to 3% positivity, they were going to cut, cut uh, close the schools in New York City. Um, and they have. Now, you know, again, I, you know, I am not an expert. It's very, very dense. So um, there, there, it may be that there's more spread in schools. I think the other thing that's really hard right now is that we actually don't even know in Ontario where 40% of the cases are coming from. So we're dealing with a kind of vacuum of of information uh, in terms of exactly what is going on. And it does seem as if you know, there has been a pretty loud uh, chorus of voices of experts uh, saying that we need to shut down more uh, in terms of the the world outside of schools if we want to keep schools open. So it's, it's you know, sort of doing it in a staged way. I, I really don't know. Like, I'm not sure. Mm. Even I, like, I'm a fairly sensible grown-up. And trying to figure out right now, it's like, okay, what am I supposed to do? What am I not supposed to do? And it's still... To me, I think the the messages to all of us have been a little bit muddy in terms of clarity about that. And then it is hard. And then you go, well, why is it okay to keep schools open? You know, which thing do we shut? But it does seem as if the better choice is to shut more things on the outside of schools in order to try and keep schools open. And the you know, here's the problem, though, and sorry to, to interrupt because you're right. Things are muddied and things are contradictory and they're confusing because we've talked to restaurant uh, owners over the last uh, month, and, of course, there's no in-house dining and there won't be for the foreseeable future. The infection rate they claim there inside restaurants are 2 or 3%, and it's mainly so-called bad actors who are not following uh, the rules that should be cracked down on. Yet then we have schools at a 6% infection rate, and they remain open. I mean, should schools remain open at all costs? 
Well, I don't think at all costs, but I think that what is important is that it seems as if um, there's there's spread in high density area. It, the, the, the spread isn't necessarily you know just or only so-called bad actors. Again, we don't actually know where half of them come from, but it's in you know highly industrialized places in manufacturing and places where there are factories. So that it's you know, but but what we I don't know. And again, I hate saying these things because, again, not an expert, but it does seem that we're doing less testing now. We're doing less contact tracing. So we don't actually know. And the, the inf- there are infections in schools for sure. They seem to be, on the evidence, coming from the outside rather than spreading within schools. So, you know, it's the difference between when they call it an outbreak, and there have been outbreaks in schools, then they close a school. So they're, they're doing it in a kind of targeted way. But but it does, you know, it partly is we seem to have a lack of information or we don't know. Uh, there seem to be a lot of non-disclosure agreements, so we actually can't hear what public health is saying uh, to the province. But it's, you know, that's the part that's worrying, I think, that, you know, the, knowing what the clear plan is. And it was to me, as a, just a human being, it did, did seem kind of easier in the spring when it was like, this is a total, absolute emergency. We're locking everything down. Nobody go anywhere. That instruction I could understand. Um, and it is, it's, it's harder to understand the school part, except when you think about uh, the, you know, two million kids that are in school. Um, and closing school for them has an impact on their lives. People are really, really worried about even the way it is, because it's a bit uncertain, um, about the the long-term consequences of having kids out of school, even if they're learning online, it's not the same. So that's one of the reasons, I hope, uh, that we are trying to keep schools open is a kind of deep understanding of the impact on kids' lives. But we do have to at some point, and I think you know, perhaps listening to the head of the directors of education, you know, might have made sense to say, let's let's do what we can when we can do it. And it seemed easy to do around a time when there was already going to be a holiday. Yeah. Well, listen, I'll go back to the restaurant owners again, because they will also argue that there's long term effects on them, their families and their businesses as well. They have less of an infection rate. They've been uh, shut down. Sadly, we had, as I'm sure you're well aware, a child and youth worker at a Toronto Catholic school uh, die after contracting COVID-19 as well. So, you know, there's a lot of warning signs right now. There, but there are there are there are really a lot of warning signs right now that the you know deaths are going back up again. The numbers are incredibly high. We're testing fewer people. Um, it, you know, it, it, the, the warning signs seem like you know glaring sirens at this point, and it you know it's seen it's somewhat frustrating that we haven't actually done anything. And I understand you know the economic cost is really, really big. There's no question. So if we shut down any kinds of industries, stores, whatever, restaurants, um, we have to make sure that we're providing some kind of subsidy uh, for the people who work there and for the business owners because there is an economic cost to them. So we have to look at that that economic cost, hopefully short-term, there's a long-term economic cost, too, of, of not doing what we have to do sort of urgently. So if you look at, like, Australia, for instance, they seem to be going, you know, we're going to shut everything down until we get the numbers right down to zero, which a lot of scientists are asking for. And then the minute the numbers creep up, like over five, 
it's like we're shut down again for six days and then we'll open up. And there, so there, there seem to be out there in the world other strategies for doing this. And I, I feel worried just as a you know grown-up person living in the world in Ontario that it, we don't seem to have a handle on uh, getting the numbers under control. And I'm not sure if schools are the first place to look, but again, not an epidemiologist, but lots of epidemiologists and scientists are saying we've got to shut things down a lot more than we have. Well, to be certain, there are no easy answers, and there haven't yeah. been since the start of this. Uh, yeah. Annie, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so okay. much. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Here goes Annie Kidder with People for Education. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.